The dominant cultural narrative is that your emotions define you, that they are the most important thing about you. Given that that's out there, and given that we are so easily sucked in and unconsciously buying into that narrative that we should put our emotions at center stage, it makes sense that there's been a huge knee-jerk reaction of you just have to shut your emotions down. And so stoicism and emotiolatry, as I sometimes like to call it, uh, those are the big things that we're in danger of. Welcome to the Crossway Podcast, a show where we sit down with authors each week for thoughtful interviews about the Bible, theology, church history, and the Christian life. I'm Matt Tully, and today I'm talking with Alistair Groves. Alistair serves as the executive director for the New England branch of the Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation and the director of CCEF School of Biblical Counseling. He's also the co-author of Untangling Emotions with Winston Smith. Today, Alistair and I discuss what our emotions are why they matter, and what the Bible teaches about them. He highlights how our emotions relate to our reason, what we can learn from Jesus' example when he wept at Lazarus' tomb, the role modern medication should play in managing our emotional life, and why negative emotions aren't always a bad thing. Let's get started. Alistair, thank you so much for being on the Crossway Podcast with us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. In the first chapter of your new book, Untangling Emotions, you ask, why on earth would Jesus weep at the tomb of his good friend Lazarus when he's just about to do an amazing miracle and fix the problem? So namely, you're referring to resurrecting Lazarus from the dead. And I think your answer is even more fascinating. You write, because Jesus is perfect. Uh, Jesus wept because he's perfect. Explain that. What do you mean by that? Because that just, that was surprising to me. Uh, but I think it says a lot about what you're trying to do in your book. You know, um, let me let me back up a moment before I explain what I mean by Jesus is perfect and that's why he wept. I, I think it is um, instructive for us to slow down at that moment where he's standing there at the tomb of Lazarus and ask, really, what is going on? And I think what, what I find... Uh, both challenging and convicting and and helpful is to ask the question of how would I have responded if I had been asked to to counsel Jesus in that moment? How would I have been a friend to him? What what would I have been wanting for him? And I I think if I'm honest, my my approach or my counsel would have probably gone something like this: Jesus, I can see that you're upset. Uh, you know, I, it's obvious to me that you're really bothered about this whole thing. And okay, maybe there's a sense of that, but um, <laughs> not not to be hard on you, Jesus, but um, can we just get on with it? You know, in 10 minutes, everyone is going to be rejoicing. Right now, they're weeping. Don't you care for these people? Don't you have faith in your own Father? Why are you not leaping into action to go to the resurrection of your friend? I mean, all the signs point to this is a time to be confident and hopeful and redemptive. What are you doing weeping? And... Um, I, I'm being obviously a bit tongue-in-cheek here, but there's a there's a sense in which it is really strange that Jesus would do this. So why is he doing it? Why why is he weeping at his friend's tomb when he's about to fix the problem? Um, I, I give the answer he's perfect. Another way to say it is that he is love. And, and because he's perfect, because he is love, it means that he will not refuse to enter into our pain, even if it's for 10 minutes. Right, because he's just talked to uh, to Martha, and and she said, "Yes, I know you're the resurrection and the life. You know, I know there is going to be this coming day," 
And you can hear kind of this glum acceptance in her voice of, yeah, well, you know, someday in the far future we'll be raised from the dead. And, and the reality is whether it's eight minutes or 80 years from now, there is this truth that Jesus will make all things well. And he sees that from beyond time, from beyond the creation of the world. I mean, for, for him, the length of time isn't, isn't really a huge problem. And so I love this, this micro moment where we see Jesus saying, you know what? Yes, in, in 10 minutes, in five minutes, I am going to resolve this in a way that will bring utter joy. And yet your pain right now, again, whether it's for five minutes or 80 years, is so deeply engraved on my heart that I weep with you, I weep for you. And actually the, the word in Greek used for weeping is the, the word used for like a, a horse. If it were used of a horse, it would be of a horse like stomping and pawing and snorting with anger. There's this fury in Jesus at what has been done to his people by death and sin and destruction. And so I, I find that very reorienting that Jesus would slow down and weep with me knowing he's about to fix things. Yeah, why do you think it is that so often we struggle with with the idea that Jesus would be truly grieved by this in light of what's coming? I think of another explanation I've heard for this moment is that Christ was less weeping over the death of Lazarus and more over perhaps the lack of faith that uh, other people around him were displaying at his death in light of what was coming. Why do we why do we struggle to accept that Jesus could be weeping because he's uh, you know with us in that moment? You know, a couple of thoughts on that one. I think the first would be um, God gives us Romans twelve fifteen for a reason when He says, "Weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice, or mourn with those who mourn." Um, there is either He's telling us something weird that He doesn't actually do or want to do. He's giving us an instruction that He Himself can't live up to or doesn't choose to live up to, or we're meant to do that because he is a God who does that, that we are meant to reflect him, part of beautiful, fully human image bearing uh, in a redeemed way is actually to grieve with those who grieve. So I think the the starting point here is I I think sometimes we are uncomfortable with the idea of Jesus grieving because it doesn't feel like that's what God should be doing, right? God is perfectly satisfied. God's glory is uncompromised. There is nothing that can diminish uh, the fullness of his, everything going according to his will. So why would he ever be sad? Why would he ever grieve, right? And those are complicated questions. But for the moment, I would just say, we have emotions because God has emotions. Therefore, um, it, it shouldn't be a problem for us to see Jesus weeping in in sorrow and in, in sadness for the death itself. So I think coming then back to your question of like, well, how would you respond? What about those who would say it's, you know, weeping at the lack of faith? You certainly see Jesus bothered by a lack of faith in a lot of situations. Um, you, you more often probably see frustration or anger than than weeping. Um, but I, I don't think it's hard to, to see Jesus being sad at a lack of faith as well as frustrated at a lack of faith in the response of, of something obvious uh, of his power that he's just shown. I just don't see a, a conflict here. It seems to me that we can. this is a both-and moment. And in fact, uh, I think there's even a third piece at play. I think certainly there can be a grief over over a lack of, of faith, although in this particular moment, he hasn't done anything yet. Uh, his, his frustration with you who are of little faith or you who are slow to believe tends to be after he has given many evidences uh, to a specific group like the disciples or in a specific situation where someone has seen a miracle and still doesn't believe. 
Um, so we've got so you've got the faith thing. You've got the I think much more pressing, obvious uh, answer of yeah, he's he's sorrowful at his friend's death, and he's watching especially Mary and Martha grieve. And then I think you also have a lot of cues, especially in the book of of John. Um, you know, his hour is coming. He sees in this death of Lazarus, you know, bringing Lazarus out from behind a stone is a pretty vivid picture of what he's going to be doing in reverse in the not too distant future. And the whole, uh, the whole scene is being set up with him moving toward Jerusalem and his disciples are like, okay, I guess we're going to go die with you. Right. There's this sense of he's on his way to something awful and certainly anticipating that, uh, that the enemy is coming for him is, is a portion I think of the anger and the weeping as well. So there's a, there's a complexity to it, but at the center and the core of all of those pieces, the faith and the mourning with and the grieving his own and anger at his own coming experience of pain is the reality that this is a broken and fallen world and his people are in it and he is here to redeem them. And there's this way in which he is radically identifying with us. Um, and that's true in his choice to do what Paul instructs us to do in Romans twelve fifteen that he is mourning with those who mourn really on all three levels when you get down to it. Hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of us, when we think about Jesus's life, and you mentioned that already here, there's a trajectory towards the cross, and we kind of get to that scene in the Garden of Gethsemane before the cross, and we see Jesus, the, the, the text describes him as really in agony, emotional turmoil, and I think a lot of us, maybe the tendency is to sort of downplay the significance of that or the reality of that, because it just is hard to make sense of the fact that he is God and sovereign and all of the things that he's about to experience are ultimately according to his will. And these aren't things that are being done to him as much as things that he is willingly giving himself to uh, out of love. And so it can be hard to wrap our minds around the idea that he would truly be feeling some of these emotions that we would expect to feel. And yet he's, in control over the whole situation. Do you think there's a sense in which we can't understand fully that dynamic between him truly experiencing these emotions and yet being ultimately sovereign over all of this? Or what what counsel would you give us as we try to wrestle through those two those two things? Well, my first counsel certainly is, man, if there's ever a mystery that if if you ever feel the um the two natures of Christ and go, how do I understand what's going on here? The Garden of, Garden of Gethsemane is about as high on my list of mysteries as, as it gets. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I have no perfect answer here. But I, I will say this, as I've thought specifically about the Garden of Gethsemane and even tried to name, what is it that Jesus is feeling in that moment? And I, I have a, a word that does the best job I know of for, for capturing it. And that, that word is dread. And I, I appreciate the way that that um, instinctively makes me a bit uncomfortable because it's, you know, I think, I suspect for most of us, the idea of Jesus feeling sorrow and mourning with those who mourn and you know, mourning in the face of death and weeping, that may be hard for us to get our heads around, but there's a certain level of like, okay, I can, I can handle that. But dread seems to push into this category of like, wait a minute, how could Jesus dread anything, as you put it, if, if he knows it's coming? Um, doesn't that kind of get into this fear that's, that's sinful, isn't that distrusting of the Lord's plan, of his Father's plan? And I, I think um, 
the best way I know to put it would just be something like this. I think what's going on in the garden is Jesus is feeling dread, not because he doesn't know what's coming, not because he's anxious and uncertain about what the future holds, but rather because he knows exactly what it's going to be. And the appropriate, godly, natural, human, right, righteous response to some coming awfulness is indeed an awareness that it's going to be awful. Hmm. Uh, I, you know, I think of something, uh, for example, like um, you know, like the pain of, of labor and, and childbirth. You you don't know exactly what day it's coming unless you have a scheduled C-section or something like that. But but you have a sense of this really painful event is coming into my life, and um, I'm not looking forward to that. It is going to hurt. Right now, there's lots of happy sense of on the on the far side of that. There's going to be this joy. Um, and there's all kinds of ways that you can prepare for that. But at the bottom line, it's you're, you're facing something that you know is going to be hard, and especially if it's your second or third child and you've been through the pain before, you have a sense of what is coming, and it's not inappropriate for you to say, I am really not looking forward to that. Now, what Jesus faced is, is unimaginably more horrific than anything any human, uh, aside from him in history, is ever going to face. And so I think his, his dread is this deep awareness of the certainly physical torture that he's going to go through, but also of that unimaginable, unfathomable darkness of the Father's face and experience of wrath, uh, of all hell breaking loose upon him, um, that he would willingly embrace that is, it's unimaginable. And, and I think for him to dread it is simply for him to look into the future, to see and know what's coming, and to have an appropriate response of saying, this is utterly dismaying to me, body, soul, and, and spirit. So, Long story short, why why are we uncomfortable? We're uncomfortable because, and we we downplay it because we just we don't we don't like the idea of Jesus not being um, satisfied in the outworking of His will, and and we feel like we're in danger. I I think for most of us, the the healthiest reason to be troubled by this doctrine of this idea is that we we feel like we might be compromising the sovereignty of God. We feel like we might be undercutting. The idea that God really is in control, and uh, and that's just not the case. That we don't have. That's not a sacrifice we're making. This isn't a a battle between either Jesus really was dreading or God is sovereign, and Jesus really did submit Himself to the Father's will fully. Uh, we this is a, a both and. It is appropriate to be utterly distressed by what is distressing, and to do that in utter faithfulness and submission and awareness of the Father's plan and control. Um, just as Jesus does, just as any pastor does when he goes to a hard congregational meeting, knowing that there's going to be hard things said about him or against him or a, a faction within the church, just as Paul does time and time again, as he anticipates the difficulty uh, of false teachers coming among the flock, just as parents do when they watch their children yet again falling into certain kinds of temptation. There's, there's many things that we can anticipate saying, yeah, this is going to be painful. Um, that's not a faithless uh, thought pattern. Uh, it easily in human beings who are sinful leads to faithless responses, but but in and of itself to anticipate this is going to be hard, this is going to be painful, um, it's not a that's not a faithless thing to do, and that's why we can have utter comfort with the fact that Jesus does it on our behalf. I think sometimes we have this view of affirming God's sovereignty. Those who those who would stand strong on that idea 
can sometimes let that sort of dictate how they feel and respond emotionally to hard things. And it can it lead us to, to think that we need to exhibit some kind of stoicism in the face of God's sovereignty. But it sounds like you're kind of saying Christ didn't do it like that. And we also don't need to think that way. That's actually not a biblical way to approach God's sovereignty. Perfectly said. Yeah, we are not called by the Bible to be Stoics. And that's not, the Psalms are the, if you want a, a proof text, the entire book of Psalms is one long look at. Um, there is ecstasy and there is anguish and they are experienced in full. And it's actually the awareness of God's sovereignty. It's the awareness of his goodness and his ability to rescue and make things right that, that actually puts, um, that actually turns up the volume on the anguish. Uh, our goal is not to check out. It's, wait, but God, you are good. Why is this happening? Wait, but God, you are faithful, and yet we are suffering. We are your people, and yet we are downcast and oppressed. And um, that that reality of God's sovereignty, if anything, makes it all the more highlighted for the Christian to live not a stoic reality, but a, a deeply emotional reality. And if, if you're going to be a Christian, you're going to have to feel deep pain because God loves this world and this world is broken. And so if you love this, this in the best sense of this world, if you love his people, his kingdom, his purposes, you will be grieved by the things that go wrong. You will be concerned for the things that could go wrong. You will hate the things that God hates and you will feel those things passionately and uncomfortably. So to take a step back a little bit, uh, you've spent a lot of time, you and your co-author, Winston Smith, have have been thinking about emotions. You've been studying emotions in the Bible and then also in the context of actual counseling of people. Um, do you have a favorite emotion that you just kind of spent a lot of time thinking about or discussing with other people? Hmm. Compassion would be way up there. And the reason compassion has jumped out at me is because it's a place uh, that I've just found myself so personally instinctively weak over the years. Um, I, from the time I was a little kid, I just, I think I had this sort of sensitivity to stories of other people's suffering that just made me not want to go there and not want to hear about it. And I, it, I didn't know what to do with it. I, I remember there was a specific uh, time when, uh, I don't know if I was, I was probably 12 or something like that. And my youth group did a, um, one of those 30-hour famine things where you don't eat for 30 hours and you raise money and the, the money's going to go to, to World Vision or Food for the Hungry or I, I don't remember exactly which group. But I remember thinking this is a cool thing and I did it and it was really hard to not eat for that long. And But the, the part that was most difficult for me is at the end of it, there was going to be this, hey, we're going to come together, we're going to break our fast together and there's going to be some time with the person from the organization coming in to, to talk about what's happening with the money. And I said, I don't want to go. I do not want to be a part of that meeting. And I, it was hard for me to even put words on it. I remember my mom being like, you've got to go to this thing. You're doing this. This is part of it. And I was like, I know. but And finally, what, what came out of my mouth was, I know they're going to show a video about the starving children in Africa. And I just, I, I, I don't even want to see it. It's just going to be too hard for me to watch. So all that to say, I think, I think compassion is this interesting emotion where you are saying, I'm actually going to take, a, take down some of my walls. I'm going to invite discomfort in on behalf of other people. I'm actually going to let other people's situation affect me. And um, man, it is hard to live in any significant experience of the emotion of compassion 
over any extended period. I mean, it's just, it's grueling. It's exhausting. We talk about compassion fatigue. Uh, I think most of us experience compassion fatigue pretty quickly. Uh, it's not, it's not a muscle that most of us have uh, that's very strong. That's certainly been the case for me. So I think for me, compassion has maybe been the most paradigmatic or, or um, it's been the best capturing of how I've shifted in my paradigm hmm. of thinking about emotions saying, okay, Lord, you're asking me to do the hard emotional work of being uncomfortable on behalf of those who are suffering. And I need to enter into their situation more, um, regardless of how well I am able to, to fix or help or support or encourage. I, I've got I've to open my heart better and more, and, and that's been a slow growth for me. As you look at American evangelicalism broadly, what do we often get wrong about our emotions? Two, two things. And uh, they're pretty, they're pretty understandable things to get wrong. Now, the first is one you mentioned moments ago: the stoicism. It is so hard for us not to be stoic. The reason it's so hard not for us not to be stoic, though, is is because the dominant cultural narrative, the dominant way we approach emotions, without even thinking about it, uh, at, at least at least anyone younger than a baby boomer, I think, um, is is buying into the culture's narrative that your emotions define you, that they are the most important thing about you. Um, I think before writing this book, I would have probably said that our culture was obsessed with emotions and that whatever you feel is right and good, and everyone just needs to accept that. I would probably temper that a little bit. I don't, I don't think our culture is saying that whatever you feel is right and good. Um, I do think that our culture would say that feeling good, feeling right, feeling authentic, feeling genuine, whatever, is the most important pursuit in life. Therefore, if there's something you don't like about how you feel, the most important thing you can do is try to change it. Um, the most important thing about you is aligning your your life with your emotions or um, finding a way to live in a way that feels right to you. So um, given that that's there and given that that has infiltrated us as a church, even an, an evangelical church, all over the place, right? That That is, it's the water around us that we don't even notice. And so um, so many different ways and times I, I see that creeping in. I think it's at the at the heart of something like the, um, you know, this this famous line that uh, religion uh, across the spectrum uh, amongst the the younger generations today is moralistic therapeutic deism. Uh, that therapeutic word, the idea that that religion is meant to make us feel good. It's meant to make us feel right and affirmed and accepted. That that the very point of all that God has done is sort of a an emotional uplift for us. Uh, that's that's poisonous. That's terrible. That's not true. Yes, there's a million, you could call it, therapeutic effects of faith in, in the living God and, and in Jesus Christ, but, but that is not the point. Um, that is the glorious overflow of the glory of God and his wonderful work in redemption. So all that to say, given that that's out there and given that we are so easily sucked in and, and tempted and unconsciously buying into that narrative that we should put our emotions at center stage, even as Christians, it makes sense that there's been a huge knee-jerk reaction of, of stoicism, of you just have to shut your emotions down. Uh, there's an A list of emotions like peace and joy and contentment, and there's a B list of emotions like sadness and hate and anger and fear and so on and so forth. And, and we just, we forget that there's all kinds of times when it's bad to feel peace and it's bad to feel joy and it's bad to feel contentment. And the easiest example is think about, think about a man who's, <clears throat> I don't know, addicted to heroin or having an affair. 
he may be feeling very peaceful when he's high. He may be feeling quite content that he's got another fix. He may be feeling very joyful that he's getting away with it and his wife doesn't know about it. Uh, Those are terrible joys and pieces and contentments to feel. We wish instead he would feel sorrow and grief and anguish. Um, We wish that he were feeling hatred of the things he's feeling. We wish that, uh, to put it in the words of Jeremiah, you know, that that he wasn't hearing a message of peace, peace when there is no peace, but rather that he were uh, responding to shame and guilt and and running therefore to, to redemption. So stoicism and uh, emotions that center stagism or emotiolatry, as I sometimes like to call it, uh, those are the big things that we're in danger of. Is it right to say that our emotions, while important, as you've you've argued here, should always be kept in check by our reason? Is it is it appropriate to kind of put emotions and our intellect or in our reason against each other like that, where there's one that's subordinate to the other? Or would you say that's a unhelpful way to frame the conversation even to begin with? I I like that way of framing the conversation, but I come down in a slightly different place than I think a lot of people instinctively have over the years. Um, There there has, in the history of philosophy, um, there's been sort of this battle between our emotions fundamentally sort of these physical things, or are they fundamentally, um, you know, responding to, are they the caboose on the train of our reason? And I prefer actually to think about a, a three-way system of checks and balances that I think is uh, all three are good God-given gifts and, and none is actually intended to totally rule the others. And I would see it as, as reason, emotion, and action or behavior would, would sort of be the three categories. And if you think about it, um, if something is going, if, if you're convinced of something, uh, that will tend to have an impact on how you feel and what you do. On the flip side, if you are in the habit of doing something, that will tend to shape how you think and, and how you feel. And if you feel something, that can have an impact on your thoughts and on your actions. So um, while it is, I think, pretty intuitive to most of us that there are important times when you need to do what is right, what you know to be good, even when you don't feel like it. Uh, there's plenty of time. You know, There's lots out there and the social media world. There's lots of Christian writing that talks about, look, you can't always believe everything you feel. In fact, you need to tell your emotions what's true and not listen to them. That's absolutely an important and valid category, and I'm glad that God has given us an ability to have a rational mind that can overcall our emotions. But uh, but something that struck me in, in actually reading John Frame's uh, Systematic Theology was talking about how it's really important that our emotions can overcall our cognition sometimes. And I would Uh, I'll use his example, which is just think about how easy it is to rationalize things that you know deep down are wrong. And that's the time when you need to be listening to your gut. You should be listening to your your conscience, to the emotion of, I just don't feel good about this, rather than your rationalizations of like, oh, well, here's how I can, you know, convince myself that I'm really not doing anything wrong if you think about it. And uh, I think that, that discomfort over rationalization is an extremely important characteristic and something that probably needs to be tapped into often. And then you've got actions where I, I, I just think about how many times you hear people saying, fake it till you make it is actually a really important part of living well. I don't really like that phrase because the idea of, of faking it, I think, probably puts it on a negative footing. That I, I prefer something that's closer to, you know, it's, it's, less, uh, it's less catchy, but more of a, yeah, there's, there's a right way to, to do something that you know to be good and to let your actions lead your emotions and sometimes even lead your thinking. Sometimes you know something is the right thing to do, but you don't really know why. It doesn't make a lot of sense to you. You know that it's important to pray, um, but 
it seems like God is just going to do what he's going to do anyway. And why does he really need me to pray? And I don't really feel like praying, but sometimes I need to get into the rhythm of being a person who prays. And over time, that may actually teach me some of the underlying, ah, okay, I'm beginning to grasp now the, the reasons why this is good, right, important, and godly. And perhaps as I do it more, I also come to understand, you know, there's a refreshment here. There's a there's an intimacy here. And I may have known that intellectually, but I taste it now and that actually drives the behavior forward. So there's they're meant to all three reinforce each other in a positive cycle. When any one of the three or even two of the three are out of whack, uh, walking righteously in the third can have this really helpful check and balance kind of impact. So there may be someone listening to us talk about this right now who struggles with some of the quote-unquote bad emotions that that just tend to dominate his or her life. I'm thinking of someone who maybe deals with severe depression or anxiety or grief, and they hear what you're saying that perhaps there is a proper place for every emotion and that they're not bad necessarily. But what would you say to the person like that who just feels trapped by his or her emotions, feels dominated by them, and, and has a hard time controlling them in any meaningful sense. Sure. couple things. First off, um, whether it's anger or whether it's grief or whether it's anxiety um, I, I, or whether it's depression, I think there can be a right way to say, wow, this is, um, this is something that may have a good, a good seed, a good possible place, a good um, core to it, but any emotion just really easily in our sinful fallen world, given our sinful nature, tends to go tends to go south and especially our negative emotions tends to go south and, and pull us away from the Lord and that's one of our great temptations and and so I don't think there's some easy answer um, so so thought number one is I think there's a there's a category here of being driven and dominated by something primarily because uh, it feels like if I just did the right thing I would stop feeling this and I would be a better Christian when I would prefer a response of you know it at the end of the day I'm actually I'm not sure how much your emotional experience in this particular way will change. What I want for you even more than emotional relief, although I certainly want that, is for you to know more deeply than possible, if you weren't going through this, just how close the Lord is and will be and wants to be and can be walking with you. Second, I think uh, you can't talk about something like this without getting into the medications question. I know there's a lot of views out there on psychoactive medications, and I've actually just been spending some time thinking about uh, psychoactive medications and the history of psychiatry. I've been listening to a very fascinating book on the history of psychiatry. But long story short, um, I do not believe that seeking out medications is sinful. Uh, I think it's easy to, uh, again, get swept up in, in a cultural narrative that probably claims more for the effectiveness of those medications than is fair in most cases. But um, go, go see your doctor. If there's an unrelenting negative emotion uh, that, that doesn't seem to be responding to your efforts to bring your emotions to the Lord and, and to other people and seek counsel, you know, certainly medications could be a piece of, of helping you uh, even be in a better place to bring your emotions and your concerns and your heart to the Lord. Um, thirdly, I think there's also a category of, of emotion words that describe things that really have no righteousness to them. And I would, uh, what I would basically say is there's, we have words in the English language that aren't, uh, that are very specific um, portions of an emotional spectrum. And I'll give an example of uh, part of the anger spectrum is called bitterness. 
um, bitterness is not all of anger, but it, it's a it's a subcompartment within anger, and I don't think there's a godly place for bitterness, um, or or cruelty is a special uh, subset of of the emotion of joy. It's it's finding delight in causing pain. I don't think there's any good uh, godly place for the emotion of cruelty. So bitterness and cruelty are are emotions that are that are purely bad. Um, not because there's some emotions that are bad and some that are good. It's rather because they are they're subsets of emotions that are that can be good or can be bad. Right? Joy can be good. Joy can be bad. Anger can be good. Anger can be anger can be righteous. Anger can be negative and 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 faithless. Um, so there are times and places where I think you could say, okay, I'm I am um, here in an emotion that I need to run from and and repent of. And I suspect for many hearing that you go, okay, well, which is it? Which am I in? I think that would be a call for conversation with someone you trust, someone who's going to give you helpful, thoughtful counsel on, okay, what exactly are you dealing with here? And and which, which category does that fall into? Alistair, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today and share your, your own experience, both as a, a reader of God's word and as a counselor, helping us understand our emotions a little bit better. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. That was Alistair Groves on how to think rightly about our emotions. For more, be sure to check out the book he co-authored with Winston Smith, Untangling Emotions, available online or at your local Christian bookstore. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review, which helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.